Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in John chapter 4. To worship is to bow down before God and to ascribe supreme worth to Him alone. And that is the most important thing that you and I can do. We were created to worship. We were redeemed to worship. It is the ultimate activity of the universe, the supreme activity of the universe. And as I hope we saw in our last message, worship is not something that we just do collectively once a week. Worship is a way of life. It is to take place everywhere all the time. Everything we do is an expression of worship. Everything we do is to bring glory to God. And listen carefully. We cannot expect to come in here on Sunday and worship God with our lips if we have not worshipped God from Monday through Saturday with our lives. We don't just worship sometimes. We worship all the time. Now in John chapter 4, the woman at the well didn't get that memo. She believed, just like most people do, that worship was something that you do in a prescribed place, at a prescribed time, in a prescribed way. So she says to Jesus in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. We worship here, you worship there. I wonder who's right. What does Jesus say? Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Neither place. Look at verse 23, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus said the place doesn't matter because of the kind of God we worship. God is spirit. Now what does that mean? Well, I think a couple things are obvious in that statement. God cannot be reduced to a form. God is spirit. God cannot be reduced to an image. Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? What physical likeness would compare with God? None. He cannot be reduced to a form. He cannot be limited to an image. God is spirit. Now the angels are spirits as well. But the angels have spiritual forms. An angel is limited to a certain place 
at a certain time. They are in a certain locality. I don't even believe that God has a form, a spiritual form, because the Bible tells us that he is omnipresent. There are no boundaries with God. And so he is not located in a single place. He is everywhere. And that's why this, when Jesus says this, he doesn't say God is a spirit. He says God is spirit. Now, you might notice in Scripture that sometimes physical characteristics are attributed to God. We're told that he walked in the garden with Adam. We're told that his eyes go to and fro throughout the earth. We're told that the Lord is not deaf, that he cannot hear. We're told that the arm of the Lord is not short. That's what we call an anthropomorphism. That is, God is trying to explain himself in a way that we understand. But it doesn't mean that God is a big man up in heaven. The Bible also says he will cover you with his feathers and protect you with his wings. That doesn't mean God is a big bird. See, if you take that view, you're going to get really confused because he also calls himself a lion, a lamb, a lily, a consuming fire. Those are just ways of expressing God using concepts that we can understand. But you see, God has no form. God is spirit. You cannot reduce him to an image. God is spirit. Second thing that's obvious about that is he can't be confined to a place. The Samaritan woman thought of God as being in a certain place. That's not unusual. The Jews thought the same way. They thought in terms of meeting God at the temple or in the tabernacle. They thought of God as being in the holy of holy places. They assumed that he was between the wings of the cherubim on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God is. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, they took the Ark into battle thinking if we bring the Ark, God's in that box and he'll have to come along. But see, that's just a symbol of where God met with man. In Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24, he says, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? In Acts 7.48, Stephen said, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. In Acts 17.24, Paul said, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made of hands. We often call this the house of God. Matt said that earlier, so I'll jump on him. This is not God's house in the sense that he lives here. When you go home, he doesn't stay here. The Bible says we can't put him in a house. He doesn't dwell in houses. God wanted to make that clear when Jesus died. So when Jesus died on the cross, what did he do? He tore the veil in the temple from the top to the bottom, saying you now have access to me. So in order to worship God, you don't go to a place 
You have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's based on what? It's based on the cross. So physically speaking, we can't get any closer to God than we already are because He's everywhere. And that's why we're to worship Him everywhere, all the time. Worship is a way of life. But although God is everywhere, there are some people who are closer to God than other people. And sometimes I'm closer to God than I am at other times. That's why when we talk sometimes we say, I was far from the Lord. That's strange language. When we have a God who is omnipresent. And yet the Bible uses that language as well. In Ephesians 2, it says, You were formerly far off, but now you have been brought near. In Hebrews 10, it says, Let us draw near to God. In James 4, 8, it says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Now, obviously, that's not a physical nearness. So the question is, how do we draw near to God? How do we worship God? Look at what Jesus said in verse 24 of chapter 4. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. To worship our God who is spirit, we have to worship in spirit and in truth. Now, the Samaritan people worshiped in spirit without truth. Look at what Jesus said in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. Now, they were worshiping, but they didn't have the information. They didn't have the knowledge. They didn't have the truth. In fact, the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, so they had a limited amount of information. And when she talks about this mountain, she's talking about Mount Gerizim. That's where Abraham offered up Isaac. And they went up on that mountain, and that's where they worshiped God because they only had the Pentateuch as their information. And so Jesus says, you're worshiping what you know, but you're not Worshiping in spirit and truth because you don't have the whole truth. So they came and they were excited in worship, exuberant in worship, but they were worshiping in spirit without truth. In contrast to them, Jewish worship was truth without spirit because Jesus also says in verse 22, we worship what we know. The Jews accepted the entire Old Testament scriptures. They were informed. They had the truth, but not spirit. Because Jesus so often said to their leaders, what? You are hypocrites. Woe to you hypocrites. They had the truth, but they didn't have the spirit. And I think those are the two poles, extreme poles of worship, untaught exuberance, and lifeless orthodoxy. And when you look around at churches today, I think you can see those two poles. 
There are some churches today that enjoy enthusiastic, aggressive, sincere worship. But many times they are lacking a proper emphasis and submission to God's Word. There are other churches that have a great emphasis on the truth of God, but there's sort of a ho-hum attitude. There's a complacency. There's no excitement, no enthusiasm. They have barren, lifeless orthodoxy. They are the frozen chosen. Where would you put us as a church? We have an emphasis on teaching the Word of God. We have a commitment to being faithful to the Word of God. We hold up the truth of God's Word. But do we balance that by worshiping in spirit and truth? Or make it personal. How about you? Maybe you can pass a test in Bible knowledge, but the question is, are you somebody who worships God in spirit as well? Now, don't get me wrong. Truth is essential. Jesus said you must worship in truth. It's not enough to worship God the way I perceive God to be. I'm tired of hearing people all the time telling me, well, my God would never send anybody to hell. Well, I really don't care about your God because your God is somebody you created. If you're not coming to the Word of God and saying, God, you reveal to me who you are, then you have created a God that is your God that's an idol. So you have to worship in truth. And it's not enough to worship God your way. People are always telling me, well, I worship God on the golf course. Really? That's fine. But that's not the only place. I mean, people go out and sit on a mountain and contemplate their navel and say, I'm worshiping God. We have to worship God in truth. The first to do that was Cain. Cain believed in God, came to worship God, but brought the wrong sacrifice, and God rejected his sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu came to the temple to worship God, but they decided to worship God their way. And the Bible says they brought strange fire They were priests. They were supposed to get the fire from the coals of the altar because the sacrifice blood fell on those coals. And God said, I want it this way. I want you to bring those coals and put them on the incense into the holy of holy places. And they thought, why bother? We're having a barbecue today at the house. We'll just take some coals off the barbecue pit. Take it over into the temple, and God didn't accept their worship because worship has to be in truth. Back in 1978, there was a story in the Chicago Tribune about a woman by the name of Mrs. Maria Rubio. She lived in New Mexico and baked tortillas for a living. One day she took out a tortilla and to her surprise she said, it is the face of Jesus. She showed it to her husband, her kids, her neighbors, they all agreed. So she went to her priest 
to have the tortilla blessed. She took the tortilla home, built an altar in her house, put the tortilla in glass with cotton around it, so it looked like Jesus floating on a cloud. And within a matter of months, Mrs. Rubio had 8,000 people come to the shrine of the Jesus of the tortilla. Everyone unanimously agreed that it looked like Jesus, except one reporter who said it looked to him like Leon Spinks. So she worshipped the tortilla, and her testimony was recorded in the Chicago Tribune saying that the tortilla had changed her life. And her husband agreed that she had been a more peaceful, happy, submissive wife ever since the tortilla had arrived. We must worship in truth. And it is not enough to worship the God we make up. We have to worship the God who has revealed himself to us in his word. But then when we do, we have to balance that by worshiping in spirit. Now, what's it mean to worship in spirit? Well, it's easy to take that as the Holy Spirit. But I don't think that's what he means. That's a given. You can't worship God without the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like saying, I worship God in truth because I have a Bible. In fact, I have several of them. And I carry them around. I never read them, but I have them. We have the Spirit of God, but I think the emphasis here is not on the Holy Spirit. I think the emphasis here is on our spirit. Because your spirit is the inner you. Your spirit is the inner person. Jesus is saying God is spirit, so true worshipers have to worship him with their spirit. Which means what? I have to worship God from the inside out. So worship is not external. Worship is internal. It's not just being in the right place at the right time. And saying the right words with the right clothes on. Going through the right formalities with the right music and setting the right mood. You can do all of those things and never worship. Because you have to worship from the inside out. You have to worship in your spirit. I love what David said in Psalm 103.1. He said, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And what? And all that is within me, bless his holy name. You see, the emphasis in worship is not on the external, it's on the internal. How do you know that you're worshiping God with your spirit? Let me ask you three questions to help you. They're in your bulletin. Question number one, do you put no confidence in the flesh? And for that, look at Philippians chapter 3. Great verse in Philippians chapter 3. In verse 3. Paul says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, notice, and put no confidence in the flesh. The true worshiper puts no confidence in his flesh. 
If you come to worship and your confidence is in your works, your confidence is in your strength, your confidence is in your talents and your accomplishments, you're not worshiping in spirit. You see, the true, true worshiper has confidence in only one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. And if I'm putting confidence in my flesh, then I'm not worshiping in spirit. Now, I find as I go along in the Christian life, the way my flesh wants to appeal to me changes. And sometimes it's not clearly disobedience. It's just doing good things in my own power. And the more I go along in my Christian life, the more I get good at the Christian life. And I think, you know, I can do this without God. Need somebody to pray? I'll pray. I'll just string some cliches together and make a prayer out of it. I'm so good at prayer, I can pray with my eyes closed. You need somebody to teach? Sure, I'll teach. I'll just read a couple commentaries and throw some stuff together. And Need somebody to sing? I'll sing. Maybe you've got talent singing. You just say, that's easy for me. Don't even need the words. I can memorize them real well. I can go through it and I can nail it in my flesh. Even acting like a Christian. I know how to act like a Christian. I know what you expect a Christian to act like, so I'll just act that way in my flesh. Listen, I don't care how pious it sounds. I don't care how pious it looks. If what we do and say doesn't come through our spirits energized by the Spirit of God then it is of the flesh. And Paul said in Romans 8.8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So to worship God in spirit means to put no, zero confidence in the flesh. Second question, do you celebrate Jesus? Philippians 3.3 also says, we glory in Christ Jesus. And this ties in closely with the first point. Because when you have no confidence in the flesh, that implies the absence of self. And when self is out of the way, then Jesus can truly be the center of your life. No confidence in me, and I glory in Christ Jesus. Now, that word glory is an interesting word. Your your translation may say rejoice. Glory is a word that's sometimes used of rejoicing, but it also has another meaning, and that is boasting. So it's the idea of boasting in Jesus to the point that I celebrate and rejoice over him. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says we are to be Christ-intoxicated. 
Always wanting more of Him. Always talking about Him. Always focusing on Him. Always rejoicing in Him. I think there are a couple indicators that point out whether you are doing this or not. Whether you are glorying in Christ Jesus. Number one would be you're focusing on Him. See, when we come together to worship, do you find it easy to concentrate on the Lord? Or do you find that you're always distracted? We're here to worship. We're here to bring praise to Jesus Christ. Are you focused on Him, or do you find distractions all around you? Reading the bulletin, wondering if your socks match, always distracted. Did I turn off the curling iron? There's Bob over there. I meant to call him yesterday. Wonder how the kids are doing in the nursery. We're going to go to Burger King or Popeyes today. What's going on in your mind? Nobody can see it. You can look at me and nod. Be miles away. You can sing praise to the Lord, know the words, you've got to memorize, but your heart and your spirit is somewhere else. See, an indicator of worshiping in spirit and celebrating Jesus is that I'm focused on Him. If you're thinking about your plans and your goals and the little world that revolves around you, that's who you're worshiping. Our thoughts should be centered on Him. God's plans, God's goals. How can my life bring glory to Him? David said in Psalm 63, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Meditate means to focus all your attention on Him. David says, I stay up at at night just thinking about the Lord. Are you focused on Him? I really got tested in this area when I went to Bible college. I grew up and my idol growing up was me and sports. And I thought about it all the time. I sat through a lot of services. My dad was a preacher. Sat there looking forward with my eyes open, thinking about me and sports all the time. Got to Bible college, gave my life to the Lord, surrendered my heart to the Lord, got to Bible college, they had a chapel every day in the gym so the speaker would stand there and over his head was a basketball goal. So I'm trying to focus on the speaker at the same time there's my previous idol right over his head. And I played on the basketball team. I'm sitting there going, got a game tonight. How am I going to do? You see, God used that to discipline me. Am I going to focus on My goal, literally, or am I going to focus on Jesus Christ? 
Am I going to give him all of my attention because he deserves all of it? Or am I going to be distracted? Second indicator. When all your thoughts are on him, that means none of them are on me. And so you know what happens? I become God-conscious rather than self-conscious. One of the indicators that you are not worshiping in spirit is that you are self-conscious. You're thinking, if I really sang to the top of my lungs and gave God my worship, what would other people think? I want to lift my hands to the Lord, but what will other people think? I'd like to pray out loud in my small group, but what if I mess up? It'll embarrass me. You see, when you're really worshiping in spirit, you are God-conscious. And when you're truly God-conscious, you're not self-conscious. Self-consciousness says, I'm more concerned that I look good than that God looks good. Worship in spirit says, God, I want you to look good. I want you to be glorified. And I really don't care what that means to me. How many of you were at game six of the World Series? Thought we had some. Oh, we got some. Okay. Good. Liars. Oh, you were there. Okay. That's right, you were. Okay. I saw you. How many of you watched the game? Okay, me too. How did you react when there's two outs and two strikes in the bottom of the ninth where down two runs and there's two men on and David Freeze hits his throat? How did you react in that situation? I got a video to show you how some people acted at the ball game. Let me, let me just show that. pretty weird. <laughs> I'm sure when they came to the ballpark, they were much more subdued than that. But something happened in the course of that game. You know what happened in the course of that game? Their team became so important to them that they didn't think about themselves. And when Jesus Christ becomes so important to us 
that we don't think about ourselves, that's when we can worship in spirit. I'm not going to be self-conscious. I'm not going to think, what does somebody think about me if I raise my hands? What does somebody think about me if I knelt down and prostrated myself before the Lord? It wouldn't matter because he's so important. If we really got a hold of that, we might be enthusiastic. You know what the word enthusiasm comes from? It comes from the Greek word in theos. Theos is the word for God. Enthusiasm means to be in God and have God in you. So if God is in you and you are in God, then you should be enthusiastic about that. I can't imagine that you sat at home and watched this game and that happened and you turned to your wife and said, Amen? Amen. (laughs) Spiritually, you and I were down to our last strike. And a miracle happened. And if that doesn't get you excited, nothing can. When Jesus Christ becomes the most important person in my life, I'm no longer self-conscious. I want him to look good, no matter how I look. And I'm going to celebrate Jesus, whatever it takes. Third thing, do you have a broken spirit? And for that, I want to use Psalm 51, verse 15. Psalm 51, 15. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God wasn't interested in external sacrifices because they were simply symbols of what he really wants. And that is a surrendered will and a broken spirit. Do you have a broken spirit today? We worship in his spirit. That spirit needs to be broken in order to worship him that way. Two characteristics of a broken spirit. One is humility. Because I don't worship God as my equal. I worship Him as the one who is unequaled. I don't worship Him in strength. I worship Him in weakness, brokenness, humility. The Greek word is proskuneo. I bow down before Him. That's humility. The reality is when I put God in proper focus, 
guess what happens? It puts me in proper focus. And I humble myself. James said in James 4.8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And then he gives the condition in verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. In His presence. In His presence, when I really see Him for who He is, there's only one response that makes sense, and that is to humble myself before Him. It's Mary breaking the costly oil and putting it on Jesus' feet and then using her hair, which is her glory, to wipe His feet. That's humility. That's a broken spirit. That is true worship. One characteristic is humility. The other characteristic is honesty. I love Isaiah 6 where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and sees the the angels there singing, holy, holy, holy. He sees God in all his majesty. What does he say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. When I see the Lord in all his glory, I get honest about who I am. I don't measure up. And so to worship God in spirit is to have a repentant attitude. I love what David said in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. David is saying, I don't always know my heart. So God, I want you to shine your light in the corners of my heart and see if there are any things in there that I have done that have offended you. And if you reveal them to me, then I will come with a repentant spirit and confess those. Do you find it difficult to worship the Lord? Might be because you're not being honest. Might be because you've got some things in your life that you're hiding from yourself and from the Lord. Maybe you need to ask God to reveal those areas to you so that you can confess them with a broken spirit. God, or David was the one man in Scripture that God called a man after my own heart in Acts 13, 22. It wasn't because he didn't sin. He committed some of the biggies. Murder, adultery, lied about it, hid it. Why was he a man after God's own heart? Because when his sin was revealed, he was broken in spirit. If you're like me, I don't like to admit that I sin. And even, you know, sometimes we're guilty of even presenting that idea to other people that we got it all together. And even when we talk about sin, sometimes we talk about it only in the past tense. Yeah, I used to have a problem with that. If you used to have a problem with it, you still got a problem with it. Where did it go? See, we're not very honest about our sin. David was a man after God's own heart 
because he was honest about his sin. And even in this psalm, when he had it all together, he said, God, I want you to search me because I think I got, I think I'm doing okay, but I want you to search my heart because I'm sure that there are probably some things there that I'm doing that I don't even recognize. And I want you to reveal those to me so that I can surrender those things to you. I think David was a man after God's own heart because he went through his life saying, God, apart from your grace, I would fall flat on my face. I don't think he went through life saying, I used to have a problem with adultery. I once killed a man. He said, you know what? That shows what kind of heart I've got. And my heart is deceitful and wicked. And God, apart from your grace, I would do it again. He's a man after God's own heart. He's a man who worshiped God in spirit because he had humility and he had honesty. And that's the attitude we need to be true worshipers. Jesus said there's only one way to worship. Those who worship him must, that's absolute, must worship in spirit and truth. When I worship in truth, I throw out all my preconceived notions and I say, God, you show me who you are in your word. And when I worship in spirit, I come with no confidence in the flesh to boast in and celebrate Jesus alone with a broken, humble, repentant spirit. We're going to close our service by taking communion together, something Jesus told us to do. As we do so, I'm going to challenge you to prepare your heart before you take the bread and the cup. Examine yourself to see where you're at with the Lord. And then come and partake with no confidence in the flesh, with that broken spirit saying, I want to boast in, rejoice in, and celebrate Jesus because it's all because of the cross. And it's all because of his grace that I can stand before him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we confess to you that so oftentimes we wrench our arms trying to pat ourselves on the back. The reality is we could do nothing, we can do nothing, and we can never do anything to pay you back. It's all about you. Thank you that when we had no hope, Jesus showed up. Went to the cross and paid the debt that we owe to offer us forgiveness and peace and eternal life. And Lord, as we take the bread and the cup today, we celebrate what you did for us. 
And yet we do so in a humble, honest spirit of brokenness, knowing that it's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about you. Thank you in your worthy name.